Friday morning on Aravim Kipper. Candle lighting in New York, 621. 621 official candle lighting time. Call Nidri, of course, tonight. Yisker tomorrow. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here each Friday morning. Mr. Honline, Shana Tova, Gemar Hatimatova, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you on all counts, and to you and to everyone, we pray for Gamar Khatimatova, and um, as they say, a meaningful fast and yeah. an easy one. It's nothing wrong with saying an, an easy fast. Some people think that that's a, a diminution of the <laughs> but easy has a lot of implications in terms of uh, the accounting that we do tomorrow, tonight yeah. and tomorrow. Well, if some people don't like easy fast, they must really resent what I say, a fast fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I wish people. Uh, oh, so much going on in this world, and we hope and pray for a happy, sweet, and peaceful, <coughs> most importantly, peaceful new year. Uh, let's go through some of the things that have been happening over the last couple of weeks. We didn't speak last week because of Rosh Hashanah, of course. Uh, so we know what happened in Mexico, terrible natural disaster. We know it claimed the life of Rabbi Chaim Ashkenazi. Uh, have you been in touch? Is there any update regarding the Jewish community in Mexico and uh, the aftermath of this terrible earthquake? Well, we were in touch at the time, but uh, not very much uh, this past week that they are uh, rebuilding. And uh, we have um, uh, the tragedy of his, uh, his uh, being killed and, and dying in this uh, uh, tragic way. And his body was only found uh, days afterwards, and he's the son-in-law of the chief rabbi of Mexico. Wow. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, we're trying to pay as much attention as possible, some might argue that here in the New York area, to what's happening in Puerto Rico. Are there any reports from the Chabad or Jewish community in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of the uh, hurricane that hit there? Well, they have been collecting uh, goods and uh, working on it. We don't have a, an assessment of damage. Uh, we have, of course, from Houston, and you were there and saw firsthand that the Jewish community was pretty severely affected by um, by the flooding. And, you know, a lot of this, uh, yeah, the problem with Puerto Rico is that the, the information is hard to get. There's still limited communication. Anybody out there who has um, any direct connection to, especially the Chabad, because I guess they have the biggest presence in terms of the Jewish community there, let us know. As Malcolm just indicated, it, it seems to be a big problem uh, being in touch with people down there. And if anybody has a a shortcut for us, let us know. All right. Um, a lot of things to talk about over the last couple of weeks. We'll start with the U.N. because uh, you, you know how closely I watch and listen to the U.N. speeches. And we'll go first with B.B. and then we'll go to Mr. Uh, to the president, Mr. Donald Trump. Um, so uh, on B.B.'s speech, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, I had mentioned that two years ago he went, I thought, a, a drop overboard on the whole Iran nuclear deal issue. And then last year... I thought he was rightfully overboard on the entire uh, Israel is leading the world. Everybody hop aboard. You're going to miss the train issue. I thought he had an, a, a perfect balance of the two this time around. What do you think of his presentation? Well, I think it was uh, it, it was uh, well thought out. It was um, meant to address issues. And in a sense, you know, he used humor, which some people knew and liked and some people didn't like. But, um, you know, talking about the penguins and, and some of the other references that he made. Um, 
but it was, uh, you know, he touched on the basis and he put forward very clearly an agenda that many of the others did not. And if you you notice, um, there's very little coverage about the speeches. I was talking yesterday with some U.N. officials about it because I thought maybe I missed it because of Rosh Hashanah. You know, we didn't get to see really the papers in the same way and follow the aftermath of the, of the speeches, which were primarily given on Tuesday and Rosh Hashanah began Wednesday. Right. Uh, but frankly, the, the overwhelming issue was, was uh, President Trump and everything else um, tailed in comparison. You know, Rouhani was here, president of Iran. Now, you remember when Ahmadinejad was here oh, yeah. and all the attention and the, his speeches and whatever, uh, along with many others, nobody paid any attention to any of them. And whether they liked President Trump or they didn't like President Trump, everybody tried to get meetings. And I know how many foreign leaders contacted us about that. And that the, the, his presence was really overshadowed virtually everything else that was going on. Oh, when we're talking about his presence, you mean the president or the prime minister? President. No, because I, I thought there was a tremendous amount of attention paid to his speech, meaning the president's speech. I think that. I'm saying the president overshadowed everything else that was going on right, there. Right, and you're saying that includes Bibi. It included Bibi's speech, yeah. it included everybody else. It was nothing really new. There was no, you know, uh, the, the member when he drew the picture of the, uh, oh, of the yeah. bomb. And, yeah. uh, I mean, the, trust me, when it comes to the Penguins and John McEnroe, I would have lost all that also. Believe me, I would not have recommended that he go there with all these references and jokes. I don't know why he does it. Maybe he thinks that American pop cultures... <laughs> I mean, you realize half of America doesn't even understand the John McEnroe reference anymore. That's how old people are. You know, like, <laughs> so that's a, one of the things. Yeah, it was a com- there were comments made at the UN about it. Uh, people did not like it, uh, the references uh, uh, and who felt that uh, if you notice others did not resort to humor in their presentation. I think the Prime Minister did it because uh, he was saying to them, look, so many of the arguments, the things that you're putting forward, are so ridiculous, and uh, and he tries to to demonstrate that it is a debatable point. Certainly, I think that uh, whether it's wise or not to use it, but the overall uh, um, the fact that you know he had scores and scores of of heads of state, presidents, kings, everything, and I met with with many. I mean, we we had. I don't know, 30 meetings maybe. We, we obviously can't go to all of them, so we divided up and assigned people to go to some of the meetings. Uh, but the biggest story of it was the traffic. I mean, I think that overshadowed virtually everything in the coverage and and uh, the president's uh, presence at every meeting. Um, and uh, I was in the hotels when he was there at the, um, the palace, and it, it was... Uh, it was quite remarkable. He had a reception there at night, and all the leaders came, or many of the leaders came, not all. So uh, I think it was remarkable in the fact that, that so little attention was paid right. to many of because, the because he plays the media, Because he plays the media perfectly, and you said Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad had the same ability. He had the ability to know what to say, when to say it, and get the attention of the media, which uh, the leader of Iran now does not have the same capability that Ahmadinejad had. Well, know. I don't know that he didn't have, doesn't have the same capability. Um, he, he doesn't say the same things. That's true. But right, the, but he doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, he doesn't it's, it's not as interesting. But when you think about what, what's going on with Iran today, 
you would have thought that that every word would have been weighed and assessed. Right, and most people just ignore it. All right, so the substance of Trump's speech. What do you think of the president's speech then on that subject of Iran? Well, I thought some of it was was very bold. It's not he didn't give an indication yet of what he's going to do. Although he did say several times thereafter that he has made a decision, but not indicating whether he will certify or not next month. And I think everybody would agree that it is a very important and uh, and critical decision. I think he, you know, he put the emphasis on North Korea, very little on the Middle East, very little right. on other topics in uh, relatively in his um, in his remarks, focusing on Rocket Man. Um, so I thought that the um, you know assertion of American pride of, of national uh, identity. There are many countries who said to us they thought that that was a, an appropriate and positive uh, uh, statement because that they do believe it. They want to see their each individual country's uh, identity, power, uh, you know, growth, etc being uh, emphasized more than the collectivity, which is often done at the United Nations, where they talked about the unified efforts and not the responsibilities of individual states. I don't even know if you know the answer to this question, but did any other countries, I think the day he spoke, there were 18 countries that spoke, uh, did any countries during any of these UN sessions bring up Israel, Iran, you know, the, the topics that we, you know, gravitate to, you know, um, most quickly? Oh sure, many many did. Many raised the Middle East. Uh, they uh, the Arab countries uh, did raise these issues. Uh, some of them uh, stronger, most of them in very mild uh, ways, um, unusually mild, and some a little tougher. But yeah, they, these issues uh, obviously uh, North Korea was raised, and the um, Macron speech was dedicated to and was considered more impactful, I think, than most speeches got coverage, but his, his really was uh, his efforts to lead towards um, uh, keeping the deal with I- Iran, but um, uh, extending and having additional conferences to extend it, to, to amend it, uh, rather than to uh, decertify or even worse, uh, and that speech, I think, got uh, more attention than virtually any other. Uh, can you just remind me one more time, if he does certify it, things essentially continue as they have been? And right. If, right, that's how it works. And if he doesn't but, certify it, then he has the right to try to adjust and, and bring it what, back to Congress? No, he or? has a right to adjust no matter what. But right. the certification just simply says that I cannot certify. Certification says I certify that Iran is in compliance. The not to certify says that he can't assure it. And when you see the reports from the IEA and others now that we say the International Atomic Energy Agency, that they have no access to any of the the military sites, which include some of the most important, like Fort Onatan's Iraq. They tell us that they're rebuilding the Iraq uh, reactor in a modified way. Um and then we saw this week this this uh, supposed rocket launch, which now I think there's a growing consensus that it was a faked uh, attack. But the fact that they have this missile, the BM-25, which is also North Korea's, it's a 2,000-kilometer range, and they are saying, look, we can hit Israel with this, uh, and it can be fitted with a, a nuclear warhead relatively easily once you have 
the missile, the, the flight capacity, etc. It's slightly different than the North Korean one in terms of the weight of the warheads and some other uh, details. But overall, it is uh, it shows, again, the interrelationship of North Korea and Iran on the missile program and, we believe, on the nuclear um, uh, nuclear program. And that's why the U.S. provided Europe with the defense, missile defense system, uh, of course, for, for, to oppose what do they call the um, the missile threat from the south, which is clearly a reference to uh, to Iran. And and you look at the other aspects of of Iran's activities, whether it's the the undermining of regimes, the expansion of its terrorist support, uh, so many things that uh, go beyond just the letter of the agreement, and some say violate other resolutions of the United Nations, that the the just certifying it and saying this business goes on as usual is uh, it would be a mistake. We even see these Iraqi Shiite militias, uh, the Harkat Hezbollah, al-Nujada, who have 10,000 uh, members in this militia, fighters, and they want to help Iran to build the Damascus to, to Beirut road um, that goes through Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon, from Iran, and to, to push the, the Shiite Crescent uh, goal, the, the hegemony of Iran, and uh, they are pushing to, to southeast uh, Syria. They're pushing in their forces there. This is where U.S. forces are backing um, uh the forces, other forces, which the Russians, by the way, have bombed twice in the last few weeks for reasons that's not clear at all. Uh, and uh, the, these guys have created also a Golan Brigade. So they're not just talking about what they're going to do there. They're looking at, at the future to to uh, uh, threaten uh, Israel. So things that have to be done is that the Iran Revolutionary Guard has to be completely designated as a terrorist organization. We have to reinstate a lot of the sanctions. We have to um, uh, make sure that things like Iran Air, which is providing uh, assistance to, to Iran and taking troops to Syria and other things, should be, again, a terrorist uh, entity, designated as a terrorist entity, so that the sales to Boeing, the purchases they're making and the sales by Boeing and Airbus would uh, um, could be prevented or, or at least diminished. The um, uh, uh, there are steps that can be taken. People think it's it's just an either or situation. It's not. We have to do much more to to enhance the sanctions to keep up the pressure. I don't think they're going to kill the deal. By the way, decertifying does not kill the JCPOA. Right. Yeah, that you've explained to us, and that's why, that's why I wonder, you know, <laughs> how much of a difference there is between certifying and not recertifying, you know, because uh, it, practically speaking, I don't know if it, would, if it would call for much of a difference, you know, in terms of facts on the ground. Well, it's a first step, and it, it certainly yeah. sends a very strong message, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure right now. The Kurdish referendum has broad implications for Iran as well. There are 8 to 10 million Kurds and a very restive population. They've had big demonstrations uh, in, in Iranian Kurdistan, and Iran supposedly flew military jets over them, and the uh, IRGC police were, were there, and the um, they have 
done very bad things. They've cracked down on the people, the Kurdish people. There have been executions. There have been uh, other uh, steps taken. And the vast majority of Kurdish Kurds in Iran would go independent too. It's, it's estimated if given uh, the chance. And as I said, 8 to 10 million people is a lot of people. And the, the other minorities in the region are looking at what's happening with the Kurds, whether it's Yazidis or Christians and others, and thinking, well, maybe we can create a autonomous regions for ourselves. What was very interesting is that the Syrians said that they're ready to negotiate autonomy in Syria in the final outcome for the for the Kurdish population there. But Turkey is apoplectic about it. You saw the big military maneuvers they did. Iran is ready to move on it. I think this is a very delicate uh, situation. I don't think that the Kurds are going to go for independence right now. I think that they're going to try to negotiate, use the outcome of the referendum as leverage. But it certainly has raised the tensions and focus. And people only look at the at the Iraqi side when, in fact, the other countries, Iran, Syria, uh, Turkey, are impacted as well. Israel has publicly expressed support for the Kurds, or there's just an impression that Israel supports them? No, Israel, I think, alone in the world, uh, the prime minister came out in support of Kurdish independence. There's been a long history of ties, of close ties and close relationship. Israel has aided uh, them over the years, but there are about 100,000 Kurds, maybe more, in Israel from uh, uh, Jews from Kurdistan. So that was uh, a tie, a close tie, bond bridge between the two. And if you saw the demonstrations during the referendum and before the referendum, there were Israeli flags flying that the Kurds identify and say, you know, see Israel as a model for what they want to do. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners, sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com on the NahumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app, Erev Yom Kippur 5778, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. A couple of minutes ago, you mentioned about the American presence or support, uh, American support for different military presences in the region. Is that is the, is the impression of that different since President Trump took over? Uh, do, do the potential enemies of the United States, and I mean potential enemies meaning if there would be in fact some type of war or conflict. Um, do they view things differently in terms of American support and American presence in that region since January, or not necessarily so? Well, they see it differently. As you know, the many felt alienated during the period that America had disengaged. Um, they are still not sure about what the policy is. At least that's what they say to us, and they're concerned about what direction future American policy will take about engagement, but the fact that the president went to Saudi Arabia, had all those countries there as a delegation uh, going to the Middle East uh, on a regular basis, Um, his engagement with uh, some of the leaders that uh, the previous administration didn't meet with or had limited contact with, uh, but there's still not a certainty about what what the direction or or the decision-making process uh, and the... um, and that's why I said that his his presence loomed large. That people look to the United States uh, primarily 
for uh, direction, and and we have uh, so many uh, hot spots. We have the, the the challenges from Russia, Turkey, Iran, many others, uh, many other places. See the Taliban again in Afghanistan. We see an American engagement there. Um, the battle in Qatar. The sides that are drawn there. So and sometimes the mixed messages, like on the Qatar conflict, where the Secretary of State sends one message and the White House seems to send another. Uh, but uh, I think that there is a greater sense of engagement, and that, um, and and the unpredictability can be a big asset when countries are enemies, especially you know can't really predict and don't believe like in the past that the United States was not going to engage in. I don't know if you would have said that a year ago because maybe then the unpredictability had a a likely default in one direction and this unpredictability under Trump may have a default in a different direction. I don't know if That's exactly what I was going to say. Wow. Um okay, there you go. Sorry for stealing your analysis. <laughs> uh, by the way, on the UN thing, any any different uh, presence of the PA this time around? Uh, any uh, anything significant regarding the PA in the UN before we talk about Haradar? I think it was much more marginalized. I mean, the, uh, there was lip service paid to the issue, but in most cases, the Arab leaders very mild in their comments. Uh, the Qataris pretty tough. Others uh, also, but. Um, Egyptians, Saudi Arabia, UAE, as far as I know, were, were much more mild in, in their comments. Um, and and Abbas's presence, again, like Rouhani, what I said, these things did not get uh, right. much attention. And it's an argument about whether it pays to demonstrate or go after the, the presence of a, of a Rouhani, let's say, uh, because you just build it up and call more attention and make it more significant than otherwise media really very limited interest. Has Mahmoud Abbas yet reacted to the Har Adar attack? So this is, uh, again, I don't think people fully comprehend why Israel makes a big uh, issue of the fact that not only did he not condemn the attacker and, and what happened, and it doesn't matter if he was mentally imbalanced or not. anything else. He could have expressed condolences to families and condemned the fact that the attack took place uh, because the ongoing incitement and the ongoing rewards and that his family, the family of the murderer who, who killed three innocent people and wounded others, will uh, already, it was announced, receive uh, the stipend that the terrorist families get and more importantly, that the Fatah website, this is his party, uh, extolled him as a martyr. So not only did we not see a condemnation of a, of a blatant murder, was certainly unprovoked as the guy who worked in Haradar. Uh, there are 100 Palestinians who every day got through, you know, without going through the regular scrutiny. People don't know, and, and Israel's enemies certainly don't want to recognize, 100,000 Palestinians have permits to come into work in Israel every day. 100,000. And, you know, sometimes they have to go through checkpoints, and or they do go through checkpoints, and um, but, the, the, uh, you know, when they recount and tell, tell the story, they, they hardly ever make reference to it. And he had been working there uh, in manual labor, and the, the um, so the attack was uh, brutal, and the resulting deaths should have been condemned no matter what. And the fact that Abbas will not do that, it tells you 
where he's at, what what the the, the mental state is, and the United States criticized it. I think Ambassador Friedman and others, and certainly the Prime Minister, made very clear that this is again, it's an indication of the mindset and and uh, the real direction that they are going. Speaking of the ambassador, State Department, according to the Jerusalem Post, declined to defend David Friedman, its ambassador to Israel, on Thursday after he claimed in an interview that Israeli settlements built after 1967 are a part of the country. The claim, which runs contrary to decades-old U.S. policy continued by the Trump administration, should, quote, not be read as a way to prejudge the outcome of any negotiations, and, quote, should not be read as a shift in U.S. policy. This according to Heather Nort, the State Department spokesperson, um, so, uh, is that, first of all, the, because we always, for obvious reasons, have always split or pointed out the differences between White House policy and State Department vol- policy, at least the way it seems to us, vis-a-vis Israel. Who, who does he represent? Does he represent the President, the State Department, or both? Well, I certainly, I think he represents David Friedman. I think he represents the President. He's clearly, he has a close relationship with him. He has taken um, very bold positions. He's very forthright and honest about uh, his views, and uh, I think uh, influences the president and obviously takes direction from the president. Um, you know, it's an unusual setup because of the, you know, and an issue that many foreign leaders raised during the week is is the ap- uh, appearance of the relevance of the State Department compared, certainly compared to the White House. Oh, interesting. On, for people like me, that's actually a good perception. Right, that, and many people predict that uh, the secretary will be out. You know, there's already been sec- speculation by the end of the year, right. uh, speculation about a succession, and I think people shouldn't get too far into that. Um, but the you know the, the State Department has not been staffed up. The state there's a the secretary with his small crew, and then a huge gap, and then you have the standard you know State Department. Foreign Service uh, people. So, while they function and obviously have embassies around the country of the world, many of them also not filled yet uh, and not able to report because there's nobody to report to other than to the secretary, uh, as some ambassadors uh, uh, told us. So, this is an unusual circumstance. You've often had, I mean, Secretary Kerry, even with Secretary Clinton, there are always moments of tension, sometimes more independence by a Secretary of State like Warren Christopher and uh, uh, even more uh, George Schultz, who really were powerful figures and, and led in a different, a different way. And then you have, um, I think, a situation today where you have a, a, a marginalization of, of state in the eyes of many. Got it. Okay. Can you explain what happened in Germany, the German elections this week? Yes, and we should all be very concerned about it because it tells you a disturbing trend that 13% of the people voted for the extreme right-wing party, which has anti-Semites, which is identified with, uh, you know, these radical views, extremist views, um, and that Merkel uh, got the lowest vote for a party for since in 70 years. Uh, you know, again, she's running in her fourth term. But the, the, uh, the, the, this is a reflection of the reaction and the protest against her policy on immigration and the role that immigrants are playing in the rise of crime or whatever in, in, uh, that's been cited in, in Germany. But, you know, it's not the only country where we see extreme right or extreme left parties gaining. And uh, obviously the Jewish community in Germany is deeply concerned about it. 
because these guys are going to continue there now within the parliament with 13%. It's not an insignificant uh, vote to in, 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 in the opposition to the government, but we'll have now a bigger platform to spread their messages. Uh, you may have said it, but I may have missed it, but it's the 13, is there a comparison with decades ago? Like, Do we know the last time that, that this type of faction... This is the biggest percentage that any extreme party got. Meaning since World War II? Like since, right. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. Um, the EU invited convicted Palestinian terrorist Leila Khaled to speak at the Parliament Tuesday in a conference of the role of women in the Palestinian popular resistance. Was there an outcry from the uh, State of Israel about the invitation? Oh, certainly, and from us and from many others. And uh, I know the Welfare Project is looking at it, uh, the legal uh status of it, but she uh, is a PFLP member. This is uh, It's outrageous to be invited to this kind of a prestigious forum. Uh, and uh, again, it just shows the weakness of Europe on, on the issues of uh, terrorism, e- even though they've been so victimized by it. But when you extol somebody like this, you are contributing to, the, to their own downfall, to the, uh, you know, the threats that they face. And the unwillingness on their part to 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 take even this this kind of modest step to and there are protests obviously from um, government officials and some of the members of the EU Parliament, but it's still the you see that they they always find excuses how to separate the military wings from the terrorist wings and uh, from the uh, other wings of of terrorist entities and not to to brand uh, Hamas or all of Hezbollah as terrorist entities and you know. Then eventually they they uh, they do in 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 certain cases, but it's it's a general uh, weakness and unwillingness to confront the reality of what they face. Yeah, serious question um, it, because I think it reflects something important about changes in the Middle East in general. But I'd love to get your impression, your your reaction to Saudi Arabia's decision to let women drive. Well, I think it's an important concession when I. Uh, was in the Gulf um, several months ago. They indicated that this was one of the reforms that uh, would be implemented. Many people were skeptical. But the fact is that the the young crown prince and the, uh, and the, uh, the king uh, are looking to institute reforms. It'll be a slow process. It's not going to be an overnight change. This is, uh, though, a significant uh, gesture, and it certainly many of the more conservative elements or, or religious extremists and Saudi Arabia, which has very strong Wahhabi um, presence and supports Wahhabi activities around the world, and many of them very extreme, um, that the that there is they are trying to change. They are trying to institute uh, uh, reforms in the economy and in the in the, in the social uh, sphere. So I know in the West they probably most people will just dismiss it and say, well, of course women can drive, but for them. It, it is a major concession and uh, or measure, but uh, so, uh, it's more than symbolic. And finally, do you? Re- I mean, I, I always think this, things like this are even more important to point out at the beginning of each year. Did you, I'm sure you realize this, but it's just remarkable. Um, it, almost every day, and you put out a daily alert, so you know you obviously see the news every single day. Almost every day, it seems. Some major company on the globe, often from the United States, are purchasing, are buying some Israeli startup in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Have you noticed that? It is amazing 
there is hardly a day when you don't see one of the major American companies or a Chinese company or somebody going to Israel, buying uh, new startups. Of course, when you get an $11 billion buy-up, as you did of the pharma company recently, you know, it makes headlines. Or when Mobileye, they right. got $15 billion, uh, $15 billion buyout. It makes a bigger headline. But we try to to highlight this to show that this is an ongoing process, that Israel has 4,200 startups. And, you know, for a small country, that's an immense amount. And and the the, the Chinese go there, the Japanese are going there. Certainly, Silicon Valley is is heavily represented in Israel. And look at, at the tremendous creativity and companies that are there. And uh, this is Startup Nation, which many people said, you know, would be an initial thrust, but they couldn't sustain it, is being sustained and broadened and just, into many new areas. Just a couple that you brought to our attention this week. SAP, which is a German software company, bought Israeli startup Gigya for $350 million. IBM, we're familiar with that one, is buying Cloudigo from Israel for an undisclosed amount. And then on top of that, Israel's Elbit Systems is providing an array of electronic defense systems to an African country under a quarter of a billion dollar contract. So, and, and SAP has two development centers in Israel with 700 employees. It's all that to the right-wingers in Germany. Others have Intel. And they say that it is the most productive, or after the United States, the most productive facility that they have and the capacity uh, that is being developed all the time. And we see more Haredim coming in. We see other people that the um, broadening the workforce, uh, which is obviously very important for Israel's future and the future of these communities. Uh, Yom Kippur is uh, upon us starting hours from now. And I know you always have a, a short message for us, but I, I just, bef- before I turn the microphone over to you, I just have to say, and I'm listening to the news from Israel this morning. I pointed this out earlier. You know, they're talking about the start time for the for Yom Kippur and what time the Ela, Kol Nidre is tonight and the Elav generally what time it'll be tomorrow night and, and emergency services in the country, how they're going to work over the next 25 hours and, and bus schedules have come to a halt in major cities and this is when they'll pick up tomorrow night. And and sometimes, you know, no matter what background you come from uh, on, the Jew, on the Jewish slash religious scale, you sometimes have to just sit back and realize the gift that we have and that we have a state of israel that at least for one day a year i know some people would like it to be more than one day a year but at least for one day a year and more take this opportunity to to remind everybody about our about our heritage and tradition i think it's a very good point that is overlooked you know public transportation stops hours before there is virtually no cars on the road i remember that um that Google one time uh, was showing uh, big traffic jams in Tel Aviv. Well, it was because people were uh, roller skating or biking that even those who didn't necessarily observe Yom Kippur, and it is widely observed, and I know many secular Israelis are, uh, who, who all go to synagogue at some point during uh, Yom Kippur, I think 90% or so of Israelis observe it in one way or another, uh, that the the I mean they, Israel lives by a Jewish calendar, and too often we we overlook that we don't think about the um, uh, the, the implications and the you know every conversation ends with Gemara Chatimatova yeah. from Israelis, including their newscast today, 
had their newscasts, and it started that way, and it ends uh, that way. So, and 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 then for Sukkot, the country virtually comes to a standstill. It doesn't mean because everybody obviously observes it, but you see Sukkot in in many places, and and people who are, are not necessarily fully observant uh, also have them, and there are are. Trends in this regard are statistics which belie some of the impressions that people have, uh, and uh, and I think many young people in Israel uh, are turning back to it, want to find ways to relate and to give expression to it. So hopefully, this is a this year we will see Yom Kippur's prayers fulfilled. Its prayers not about. Just uh, Rosh Hashanah is much more about the future. Now we look also at the past. We do the al which we don't do Rosh Hashanah, looking at all that we did last year. Uh, but all of it is about the future, then ultimately about how do we change, how, what, how sincere we are in our uh, expressions of, uh, of regret, our assessments, our personal assessments, both in Adam L'Chavero, but what we've done with our a fellow person and our involvement in the communities, and then of course our relationship with God, and you know the judgment, as Rav Salah J. Fajik points out, is not just about what we did. When they says the the book of life and the book of death, he says it's the book of the dead because sometimes what you do may not reach its full fulfillment in your lifetime that it could be a generation later, something you did, your grandchildren, either how you educated your kids and the grandchildren and, and the, um, the the seeds that you laid, the, the, some of the things that you may have done that didn't blossom in your lifetime, but years later came to fruition. And so that we judge for good and bad those in previous generations who, who have died in the past, as well, of course, all of those who are living to to think about this in the longer term, to think about the multi-generational impact of what we do and what we fail to do. Extremely important point. We take this opportunity to wish you a happy, healthy, sweet new year, a year of peace. Continue your amazing work on behalf of the Jewish people. Believe it or not, the next time we speak on the air is going to be Erev Shabbos Parsha's Noach. Imagine that. So have a have a wonderful young. Well, we'll be we'll be flooded by news by then. <laughs> you could say that. Oh yeah, there'll be a lot. There's no question. We'll be drowning in news by then. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful yontif, and we will speak soon. Bezrat Hashem. Friday morning, erev Shabbos on this erev Yom Kippur. Candle lighting at six twenty one on this erev Yom Kippur in the New York area. Six twenty one, followed of course by Kol Nidre, and uh, hopefully by an easy fast for all and a uh, an inspiring and meaningful yontif for everybody. Uh, next week, as Malcolm just said, it'll be Sukkot right after Yom Kippur. Wednesday night starts the holiday. The next time we will speak in terms of weekly update and analyzing the news will be three weeks from today uh, when uh, we stand at Erev Shabbos Parshas Noach, uh, which will be on the 20th of October.